0: Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash podcast. If you do not use Patreon, but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOPod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. I, put I back was just with,
1: about to go running, so I'm wearing my running clothes. Sorry.
0: <laughs> me, I <laughs> you you won't butt. hear any disagreement from me on that front.
2: <laughs> yeah, Zach's a big running man. I, I'm, uh, I'm, still, up Zach. I'm still trying to. Uh, I got to do this six minute mile. You know, at 250 pounds, that's my goal right now. So I'm still doing interval. I was doing them the other day, and I felt a little twinge in my calf, and so I had to shut it down. So I'm up to, you know, as I know, I started out with these. Uh, what did I start out with? One minute. And now I'm up to two minute repeats at, the, at that six minute pace. So I got okay. to I got to do three minutes and then jump on and do a full six minute. Mile. Yeah, you'll get it. Five nine yeah. or both. I'm doing you know, I'm doing the 300 ups a day right now. My chest has been sore for 12, 12 days consistently. <laughs> uh, Nicolette, I like to put a um, custom background for each guest, and I know mm-hmm. you, you're, you're you're somebody that does cows and so. I have no no idea what breed you have, but I think at least I got beef cattle and not dairy cattle. Yes, often. yeah.
1: Those look okay.
2: <laughs> so those are okay. Just, All right. just
1: maybe just tell people that those are not our cattle.
2: Yeah, okay. Because <laughs>
1: otherwise my husband will freak out.
2: <laughs> I think that's a, is that an Angus? Is that what you think that looks yeah, like? Yeah,
1: those a, are Angus.
2: Those are Angus. Mm-hmm. Okay. What kind do you guys run?
1: We have Angus cattle too, but they look a lot better than those ones.
2: They look
0: better though. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so what makes a good looking Angus cow?
1: Um... I mean, it's just the condition of the cattle and the confirmation. So if my husband saw those, he would not be happy with yeah, my see. picture being in front of okay. those guys. Well, you know well
2: I, I apologize <laughs> in advance. <it's your> <laughs> no, I mean, they
1: don't, they're not, they don't look horrible, but they're, I mean, you know, we take a lot of pride in our animals. You know gotcha. how
2: that Gotcha. Anyway, so the, the, for the record, these are generic cows. I pulled off the internet. They are not there Nicolette's cows, so don't there take them go. as they are. Hey, Nicolette, for the people that don't know uh, your story, can you briefly just kind of give us a... Uh, and Zach's been recording this, by the way, just so you know, but can you just give us a kind of a brief description of, of, of your background a little bit, and then we can kind of get into discussing stuff.
1: Yeah. So I'm um, originally from Michigan, and I grew up there, and as a kid, spent a lot of time outside and was really interested in nature, and I majored in biology in college, and then I, after college, I became, a, a, I w- or I went to law school and became a lawyer, and I worked for several years as a lawyer for um well first as a prosecuting attorney and then for law firms and then i started working for environmental groups and i worked for the national wildlife federation first and um of course their work is really about protecting wildlife for the most part but you know just sort of general and mostly related to water quality and then i went for that job to working for bobby kennedy jr in new york um he, he heads a group called Waterkeeper Alliance, and I worked for them as, a, as an environmental lawyer. And after I'd just been there for a couple of weeks, Bobby Kennedy asked me to launch a project for the organization that was gonna focus on pollution related to the livestock industry. And so that actually became my, my specialty, and I did that for two years, and I left that job um, in 2002. And from that point forward, um, I got really interested in this whole question of how the environmental uh, issues surrounding livestock through that job. And um, I had met a lot of farmers and ranchers in that work, including Bill Nyman, who's the founder of the Nyman Ranch Network of Farmers and Ranchers. And um, I decided to leave that job. And um, I wanted to write about this issue and um, probably continue working in some other capacity. And I ended up marrying Bill Nyman instead of pursuing another job at the time. And uh, that kind of unexpectedly direction. And then I moved out to California. I was living in New York. And um, he, of course, was already living and working on a ranch in, Cal- in Northern California. And when I moved here, I just assumed I was a vegetarian and had been for a long time. And I sort of assumed I would not be involved with the ranching operation because there are vegetarians in the ranching field. And it seemed like a bit of a leap. But I, when I actually moved here and started living on the ranch, I got really interested in what we were doing. And I started working on the ranch and um, actually got really super interested in the ranching side of it. So um, I ended up not pursuing another um, environmental lawyer position and ended up just writing about my work and working on the ranch. And I did that for about seven years. And I wrote a book called Righteous Pork Chop, which was my first book. And it was arguing in that book that, you know, animals are a really important part of the food system and the landscape and the farm economy, but at the same time, we weren't raising them the best possible way in the world. So that it was making an argument for improving the way livestock are raised. And then after I wrote that book, I did a lot of speaking and writing about this whole question. I sort of continued working on that, but I got more and more concerned about the the public conversation, which was people were getting more aware of the problems in the mainstream livestock production, which was good because I think there needs to be a lot of improvement there. But at the same time, it, the answer that was kind of coming out a lot of times in conversations was we need to get rid of, you know, that part of the, the food system and that we need to get rid of animals and we need to get rid of the food, you know, the, the, an, the food from animals on our plates and get them, get them off the landscapes and so forth. And, and so I increasingly got worried that that was, you know, this kind of oversimplified version of, the whole question, and that that answer, which was not only not going to be helpful, but it was actually going to make things worse, both from a dietary and from an ecological standpoint. So I wrote a book called *Defending Beef* um, about four years ago now, and and that's been my most of my focus since then, and just this making the case that the animals actually play a really important role in uh, in the whole food system and in the sort of the the larger ecological system of the earth, and that we really need those animals as part of the food system. So so I've always been advocating for better systems, and that's kind of my face. Um, but increasingly, I'm sort of focusing on pushing back against this notion that, you know, we, we need to get rid of the animals. So that's kind of become my specialty. And actually, I'm working on another book right now, which is about the whole question of omnivory and whether humans you know, need to eat an omnivorous diet or not. And as you might have to answer, to that question is going to be, yes.
2: <laughs> um, so
1: that's where, that's, that's where I am now.
2: So let me ask you, I mean, cause you said you, you're you vegetarian when you went, are you still practicing vegetarianism or are you, are you adding animal products back or meat in your diet now?
1: Well, it's, it's an interesting question. It's very timely because, um, I'm 51 and, uh, Actually, I saw you say something a couple of weeks ago in one of your podcasts where you were, or a video you had done where you said, you're kind of laughing and saying a lot of these vegans are like in their twenties and they they have no idea what, you know, what's going to happen to their bodies as they get older and that's when they're really going to need the meat and stuff. And that's actually, I kind of, I thought that was an interesting comment because that's sort of been my, um, my experience is um, I've been a really healthy person my whole life, luckily. And I've been a person who exercises a lot. I'm very, uh, focused on eating whole real foods. And I always have been, I was actually reared by parents that taught us that. So I was never a junk food kind of person. And I, um, always followed a really good diet and exercised a whole bunch. And, uh, and it worked for me. Um, but at the same time, as I, you know, started going through my forties, I found it more difficult, especially to maintain, you know, the muscle that I always had. And, um, and I was getting more fat on my body and not as much muscle, and I did not like that. And I and I recently just had my bone density tested out of curiosity, and I found that I'm um, I have my bone density is thinning, which I do not like. I'm a runner. I mean that should that doesn't make any sense, right? So I've been for various reasons. I've been um, I've made the decision that I want to transition back to including some meat into my diet i've already included um, homemade um, meat stocks broths which i um, have I've, I've always made those from our own um, animal carcasses and bones and stuff and um, and I use those in my cooking so I've had a tiny bit of animal product or meat products really I've always had dairy and eggs but anyway so I'm actually right on that tipping point where I'm going to be transitioning back into an omnivorous diet and i and I haven't uh, actually started eating yet meat yet because I want to do this, I want to measure everything and I've begun the process of doing that, all my, you know, my bone density, but also my blood, all my, all the things that's happening in my blood work. So I'm sort of going through that process right now. It's well,
2: you interesting. Have, you should have access to uh, to good quality meat, I assume. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we do. And unfortunately, we only rear, uh, you know, beef cattle and turkeys. So uh, my, my sons get kind of tired of that because, you know, we have very little meat coming from outside in this family. And so, um, you know, every once in a while I trade somebody some, you know, something for, you know, a chicken or something like that. <laughs> so we get a little bit of other meat and we do allow them to eat, you know, meat out in the, the rest of the world too but when we're at home and I cook meal I cook every single day so they eat a lot of home-cooked food and that's pretty much beef and turkey although they get we get some lamb too because my husband has a long term relationship with some really lamb ranchers so they have a little bit of lamb also but yeah we have some great meat here and um, I'm looking forward to trying it.
0: It, it is interesting, to the, the topic of bone density when it comes to protein and the quality of protein. You know, that was a question I had for one of our past guests, uh, Professor Don Lehman, because I think a lot of times when people think of protein, they just think of building muscle. And it can be very easy to say, like, oh, well, I don't want to be a bodybuilder. I don't need an excessive amount of muscle, so therefore I can get away with the bare minimum of protein. And when you look at actual, the actual role of protein in the body, you know, like bone density and things also play a role, Um, as well as, and Sean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Professor Lehman was saying something about the rate of optimal calcium absorption is improved when you have higher rates of protein in your diet, um, which obviously is going to be important for bone, for bone health. And it's also a source of uh, some... Deception or maybe not deception, but just misunderstanding where people look at like uh, the amount of calcium that gets passed through when you have higher rates of protein, and some people were uh, extrapolating that as to be that protein was causing calcium to not be absorbed when in reality it was just the body so efficient that the utilization of calcium when the protein is in the in the context that it just wasn 't needing all of the, the calcium it was getting or, or something along those lines and um I would encourage anyone to go back and listen to that that the Don Lehman episode if they're curious about that.
1: Yeah, actually, I want to listen to that. I, that whole question of the quality of the nutrients is a huge issue. I was just talking to um, one of the medical doctors at Kaiser, and I was discussing this whole question and 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 she said, well, you know there's not really any connection between meat and and bone density and I thought wrong (laughs) and i told her i said you know all the nutrients i said all the nutrients whether you're talking about micronutrients like zinc calcium iron um, but also the protein i said those are all a better quality when they come from meat and the thing is i made this choice for all these years despite the fact that i had learned that from really credible information i made the choice to pursue a diet that i knew was somewhat less than optimal for my human, you know, the human nutritional requirements, because I was kind of in that maintenance age, you know, but it's when you reach that, you know, 40s, 50s, you, you got to start, in my view, <laughs> having as close as possible to your optimal nutrition. And, you know, I think you can sort of maintain your health probably when you're younger on a less than optimal diet, but when you're really young and when you're older, you've got to have the best possible diet. And so that's what that whole question of the calcium, I told her, I said, you, you get the, the, the calcium that you get from meat as well, as well as the iron and the protein is a better quality. Your body can utilize it better. So she, but she was just telling me something that was just false. And, and I got that from the other doctor I talked to about this at Kaiser too. So this is not something that most medical doctors are even aware of.
2: Yeah, I mean it's, and it's not that the calcium molecules are generally any different. It's just that the way they're presented from a biologically available form is much better. You know, we've got a lot of things, compounds that are in plants, oxalates, phytic acid. You know, even fiber will will prevent the absorption of calcium. So you you have far less bioavailable calcium when it comes from a plant source than you do an animal source. So that's you know just one reason to, to talk about that. And there's there's probably lots of different things going on that we don't even know yet. So, Right, I agree. Nicolette, let me ask you, um, because I want to talk to you about, in general terms, why why is it important that we have, you know, particularly grazing animals as part of our ecosystem? What is what is the benefit to that? Why, why, why should we not do away with animal agriculture and save the world and feed everybody soybean mixtures and, you know, fortified foods? Why do we need these ruminant animals beyond just their nutritional quality. I mean, obviously they're, 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 they're a good source of nutrition. You know, I believe that wholeheartedly and I think anybody that objectively looks at the evidence has to see that, but why, why do we need them on the ground? What's, what's the benefit?
1: Okay. So I think there are two, um, this is something obviously I've been looking at for almost 20 years. So I've thought a lot about it and read a lot about it. And I've seen a lot of farms and ranches all over the world. And I think that the two sort of, um, easiest ways to think about it are that basically, if you think about any natural system, if you think about nature, and the more you study, and I, you know, as I mentioned, I was a biology major in college, so I spent a lot of time looking at nature on the, you know, the microbiology level, as well as, you know, the macro ecosystem level, and, and whatever level you're looking at, nature is always very diverse and very complex, and there are tons of inter- Uh, relationships between all kinds of organisms. And really, it's always in nature, this complex relationship that happens between plants and fungi and animals. And it's always there in every single aspect and every single part of nature. And when you try to um, create a farming system that is truly ecologically vibrant, and the term now that's being used all the time is regenerative, and and I like that term because we've had this whole extractive mentality about agriculture forever, and the regenerative agricultural movement is saying, no, we can actually farm in such a way that we're sort of mirroring the way nature functions, which is always to regenerate everything. It's always cyclical and you have life and you have growth and you have death and then you have the reintegration of whatever was living into the ecosystem and, and other things depend on that death and for the regeneration. So I love this whole notion of regenerative agriculture and it's an absolutely essential thing for people to start understanding. Um, so when you think about um, an ecosystem, you always have animals in it. You have to, and they're, they're you know, whether you're talking about, again, the microorganism level or, you know, elephants. I mean, you know, from the biggest land animal to the the soil microbiology, you have every type of, of every size and shape of animal, plant, fungi, all working together, okay. And so, sort of related to that, um, if you think about how the globe looked you know, for the last, let's say, 150 million years, and what was on the globe and how everything has been evolving. um, There were, you know, obviously lots of animals of all different shapes and sizes. And starting about 60 million years ago, there were large numbers of, well, first of all, there there was the emergence of grassland ecosystems. And you had the coevolution all over the globe with these ruminant animals and other types of grazing animals. Not all grazing animals are ruminants, but a lot of them were. And you have this co-evolution of all of these open areas on the globe with large grazing herds. And that was the case for tens of millions of years, that you had much of the globe covered by these large ruminant herds. And today, what we have, because of human activity, you know, a lot of hunting, a lot of development of the Earth, but also because of you know, the changes of climate that occurred naturally, even before you know, humans were doing a lot of activity that was contributing to it. But you had the loss of a lot of these herds. I mean, complete disappearance in some cases or dramatic diminishment. So example, for example, the caribou herd in the Arctic, that's still significant, but it's a small portion of what it once was. And we still have a few bison roaming around in North America, but. A tiny fraction of what was once there, and so you know you always had fluctuations in the sizes of these herds. But you had a lot of herds covering the globe for tens of millions of years. So, but we no longer have those wild herds. We just have little pieces of them. And so, what you know, Alan Savory, the you know wildlife ecologist from uh, from Africa, that says this so well um, from Zimbabwe, he explains so well. You have the ne- you actually have a need for these domesticated grazing animals as a proxy for the disappeared grazing wild animals that are no longer on the globe. So it isn't just that the the grazing animals that we raise the cattle and the goats the sheep you know the domesticated bison all these things it's not just that they're okay. <laughs> you know he argues and I totally agree with this. They're absolutely essential. You can't have the ecosystem function without them. And especially these large open areas like in the western part of the United States and in parts of, you know, sort of the steps of, you know, in Eurasia and in large parts of Africa and in large parts of Latin America, you actually have these large open areas that require grazing animals for proper ecosystem function. And and he may, Alan, Alan Savory makes a great case about the desertification of the land, that there are huge areas that have gotten really dry and desertified because of the absence of these grazing animals. So, Um, you know it's a kind of a it's a a very important frame for people to think about this whole issue and most people are not thinking this way right now
0: yeah that's that's really interesting we actually had alan on episode 85 and he was talking about the desertification and how it is indeed an issue of properly managed increased ruminants in order to kind of help with this stuff and if we don't do that it's just a matter of time before some of this stuff becomes even bigger issues than they already are and you know, one of the things he mentioned that I thought was really interesting was the the ruminants as like a sink for water cuz you know, when people think of cows, the first thing I think most people think of is how many gallons of water does it take to produce a pound of beef and you get all these kind of um, teased statistics out of that where it takes like, you know, 17 gallons of water to produce 1 pound of beef and people are just they're not looking at water in the right way when they're looking at it from that lens. And I'm pretty sure it was Alan who was talking about this and he was saying the really interesting thing about ruminants and desertification is these, these animals are huge and they, they actually capture a lot of water. And when you think of water on like a dry environment, if it dumps down all at once, it's just going to flow right over and flow off, especially if it's already like low quality topsoil. And he's said the fact that these cows kind of can hold that water and gradually release it over time obviously allows it to kind of stay in that area as opposed to run off where it's it's not intended to go and I just thought that was a really interesting kind of connection or piece to that puzzle of uh, how everything is kind of working synergistically when it's when it's operating in the right in the right manner.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting idea. The animals. What what I talk about in a lot of detail in my book, Defending Beef, is that wh- where you have well managed grazing animals, and Alan Savory as well as me, we both argue that there needs to be a lot of improvement in the way animals are managed in the landscape in much of the world. But uh, but they're still essential, you know. So it's the question of whether you know this. It's not the cow; it's the how thing. Um, but. Really what I talk about in a lot of detail in Defending Beef is that the landscape will hold a great deal more water in it for a lot of different reasons where you have a vegetative cover and you have that, which is, there's lots of evidence that well-managed grazing improves the vegetative cover. It makes it denser, it makes it more diverse, you know, it's, it's a much healthier, you have a great deal more vegetation where you have grazing than when you don't, okay, if it's, especially if it's appropriately managed. But what happens is because you have that vegetative cover it's like a protective blanket on the earth's surface and that actually holds the moisture in and because you have the growing plant the roots creates create uh, pockets and porosity in the soil and that holds the water okay so there's all and then because you have that activity going on you have the plant life and all the photosynthesis and the carbon being pushed out by the plant into the soil it the exudates of the plant into the soil that actually creates a much healthier and much more active soil sub you know subterranean environment where you have soil microbiology and other smaller animals and fungi that are down there that are not necessarily microscopic but, but small um, things like earthworms and little beetles and all that stuff but also tons more diversity in the soil microbiology and when all of that is happening you have more water retention in the soil. In, in addition to other all kinds of other benefits, carbon So there's a again, it takes this whole big picture ecosystem um, understanding to think about this issue properly, and it also takes looking at you know what's happening on on a microscopic level. And when you do that, you see how absolutely essential these grazing animals are.
2: Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, because our, you know, arguably many people argue you guys are doing it right. We've got Joel Salatin coming on the show next week. Many people would be impressed by the way he's doing it. And there's other, you know, there's a number of other sort of famous ranchers that are, that are really adopting this holistic or regenerative style of agriculture. How many, what's, how many cattle can you graze per acre? I mean, I mean, there's talk about what we need to do, whether it's one per acre, two per acre, three per acre, you know, kind of maybe some people say three per acre is a max. How many cattle can you do? Can you raise this way? If we were, if we were to say, let's just pretend, because I think it's a lot of this is speculation that we could get every rancher in the United States. And I'm, I'm not talking the world; I'm just saying just the United States for now. Mm-hmm. To you know, say there were incentives, maybe there are laws or tax incentives passed that if you adopted a regenerative style of agriculture, you know how you pasture your animals. How would what would that look like? What is our what is our land support? Could we could we convert that? And how much meat would we produce relative to what we produce now?
1: Yeah, that question gets asked a lot. So there's this whole notion that you, you know, this regenerative agriculture is a nice idea, but there's no way this could ever be done on scale, certainly not globally, and probably not even in the United States. And you hear that over and over again. I've, I've been looking at a question for a really long time because, uh, you know, it's for 20 years I've been advocating for this notion that we need to have animals out on pasture and on rangeland and the grass, not, you know, not in confinement buildings, not in feedlots, et cetera. And so I've looked at lots of different sources of evidence on this. And there have been a number of analyses that have looked at this. Um, I, in, in my books, I talked about a, a, a think tank in um in Europe that did a global analysis on this question, and they concluded that this was entirely feasible. Um, the Savory Institute, headed by Alan Savory, has also um, done an analysis for, I think, just North America, where they just looked at how much land is available for grazing or would be, especially if you um, didn't need the feeds that are created, you know, all the crop plants to grow the soy and the corn and so forth, that goes into the feedlots. And if you got rid of that, and then you also did holistic managed grazing, how much, you know, um, beef could you raise this way? And the interesting point is it isn't like just one plus two, you know, equals three, or if you know you take this and you minus this, it equals that. It's not like that at all. It's much more complicated because every single plot of land has a different capacity for um, agriculture and for grazing. And so there's a really, even literally, even as I'm looking out my window at our own ranch, different parts of our ranch are more or less productive and our ranch is more or less productive than the one down the road. Okay. And that has to do with everything to do with wind and climate and and management, but also just natural, you know, the contour of the land, etc. But the really important point to note is that when you manage the land well, it has a much greater production capacity. It had, it's much more ecologically vibrant. So I don't know if you've ever had Gabe Brown on your show, but he's an extraordinary, wonderful spokesperson for regenerative agriculture, and he's a farmer in North Dakota. And he talks a lot about this, that you, when you have a sort of conventional mindset for agriculture, your whole focus is, what am I gonna go out and kill today? Okay, you're trying to kill every, you know, fungus, you're trying to kill every insect, you're trying to kill every weed, you know? (laughs) That's your whole thing. And then get the one thing out of it that you want. Well, regenerative agriculture is a totally different approach. You're trying to figure out how does an ecosystem function and how can I get my landscape to work in such a way that it's actually functioning the way this landscape's meant to work and we're producing food off of it. And it's much healthier and much more nutrient rich food. So bringing this back to the question you asked, you can produce a lot more vegetation and therefore more grazing animal production, whether it's meat or milk, when you are managing in this more regenerative way so it isn't simply a math question of how much um, land is out there right now and how much land would be gained by taking you know the crops away that are fed to the feedlots and then okay how many grazing acres do we need for the current system it's really a question of how much production would you have if you managed it properly and the savory institute did that kind of analysis and found that there would be about a 30% surplus in in the united states if you land surplus. In other words, there's way more than enough land to produce all of the current production that we have now. That being said, I really believe that humanity has to grapple with this whole question of healthy food, healthy diets, and healthy landscapes and how these are all connected. And if it were the case that we needed to reduce some um, you know, amount of grazing somewhere in the world in order to have a healthy landscape, I'd be in favor of that. But there, I've never seen any evidence to that effect. In most places, you probably need more grazing, not less.
0: That's interesting, and you brought up, um, uh, I guess, a, a region that I find interesting because I think when you're looking at this kind of like the savory stew process, like if you do a surface level analysis, the first question that maybe pops in your mind is like, well, how do we implement that in states like the Dakotas or these northern climates where they have a harsh winter as part of the year? And you are talking about Gabe, who clearly practices this, and he's up there. So, like, what does he do right. differently during those cold months than, say, someone down in, like, Texas where they have more uh, warm weather year-round?
1: Well, um, Gabe just wrote this fantastic book, Dirt to Soil, where he really describes what he's doing and why he thinks this is applicable anywhere in the world. And and he talks a lot about this whole question of understanding you know, your ecosystem and working with it and creating diversity. Diversity is one of his, you know, primary watchwords, And I just moderated a panel that he was on in at the, um, Acres Conference in Kentucky a few months ago, and I had a lot of opportunity to discuss this whole question with him and he and he repeatedly emphasized What I'm doing is something that can be done anywhere in the world. So he gives some specifics about his operation and how he's doing it in North Dakota. But the, you know, the sort of the bottom line is You if you think about grazing animals, you know, I was just mentioning the caribou in the arctic, they are absolutely all over the world including very cold climates. You don't have to have a tropical climate. In fact, there are huge, you know, it's more problematic in some ways to raise, you know, grazing animals in tropical settings. <laughs> you can have, you know, snow cover and you can have harsh winters and so forth and um, everything is about adapting to your your climate and your situation year by year and, um, and understanding your landscape and what what works there. He has a lot of cattle on his ranch and he doesn't feed them any grain. Um, in fact I think I remember him saying that he doesn't even feed them any hay. He used to do some hay feeding in the winters and he doesn't do that anymore. I don't fully know how he does that in his operation but you know there are lots of different things that people around the the north north america are doing in terms of making um more cold season grasses available in their operations by by you know getting that introduced into their mix of plants that are available and just um adapt the animals need to adapt over time to that um to that changed climate. So you'll, you know, you're going to have a herd where some of the animals are going to do well in that kind of a a system and some are not, and you're going to eventually um, reduce the number of animals that are not performing well in that kind of a situation. And you're going to have a hardier animal basically. Um, But it's really trying to mimic natural systems. And um, the idea that this could only be done in, you know, the, the middle of the United States or the Southern half or something, that's just not true.
0: Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage-breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to ButcherBox.com and place your first order. Now, back to the show.
2: Hey, Nicolette, let me, um, you know, this is one thing, and we had Alan Savory on it. It was wonderful having him on, but it was, at the same time, it was very frustrating because he wouldn't give any details. He was just like, management, management. And, he would, and it was like, what can you do? So I, I just want to know, I mean, again, I'm not, a, I'm not a rancher. Maybe one day, maybe I'll have the opportunity to do that down the road, perhaps. But for now, I'm not a rancher, so I don't have any you know real on the, on the ground knowledge other than I've talked to a lot of ranchers but you know when we cuz when we we talked about you know different type of grazing strategies and we know that if you let an animal overgraze you know they they they're in the same place and they eat it for days and days and days and they 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 destroy it so you've got you've got that issue uh, how do we specifically and I, and I know it's going to be dictated by climate and it's going to be dictated by the type of grass and there's all these things but in general are there any generalities that we can say that this tends to work in most environments as, as, a, as a grazing management, style. Yeah. Is, is it the, you know, the, the mob grazing, the short term, you know, you know let them eat for a couple days and then move them? Is that consistently gonna work in most places or what's been your experience and how do you do it?
1: Yeah, so I, I share your frustration in terms of trying to nail down some specifics, but at the same time, the longer I've been doing this, both on you know, our, our own ranch and visiting a lot of other ranches and doing the research on this, the more I understand why people like Alan Safer, you don't want to be, you know prescriptive in terms of how to do this because it really is all about understanding your landscape and in fact, I, I wrote the forward for a great book that came out in the United States this year um, called Call of the Reed Warbler by Charles Massey, who's a terrific, you know, ecologist and rancher from um, Australia and that's his whole notion is that if you understand the, how your landscape was meant to function, that's the starting point for figuring out how to truly be regenerative in your in your location. But I would say this. So I would say, first of all, it is incredibly site specific and operation specific. And, um, and I wouldn't even, you know, I don't think even what we would do on this ranch would apply to the ranches up the road necessarily. I mean, I really think it also has to do with what you have resource wise in terms of your, your, your people power. You know, this is where Alan Savory's ideas of holistic thinking come in. You have to have, you have to know what you have, what are your short, you know, what, what do you not have? You know, what resources and strengths do you have both in terms of humans and in terms of the landscape and in terms of the moisture level, all that stuff. But I would say a few things. One thing is we definitely know that the, the land has to rest. This is a really important thing, and Alan Savory does talk about this a lot. So you can't have continuous grazing on large open tracts of land. and in fact it's a really dumb idea to have continuous crop production on you know a same piece of land over and over the same crops. You you know the land really doesn't work that way. Nature doesn't work that way. Nature is all about regeneration and diversity and these interconnectedness between all these living entities. So when you're continually trying to take the same thing out of a crop field and plant it year after year you have to get you get more and more dependent on the chemical amendments that you need to put in there to make it possible to grow that and eventually you're really not going to be able to even do that. But when, you, when it comes to grazing, similarly, you need to allow the land to regenerate itself in terms of, so for example, plant growth, you have a, a grazing comes and essentially crops, the prunes, the vegetation, which is really good both for um, to create diversity in the vegetation because you, you make more um, sunlight available to other plants that are not yet coming up, and you actually stimulate the plant to grow more, and it causes the roots to die back, which adds more carbon to the soil. There's all kinds of you know interesting stuff that happens when you crop a plant, and that's a lot of what grazing is. Grazing is also pushing with the soil, uh, with the hooves, pushing the vegetation into the soil, which is essentially feeding the soil by doing that, because the soil microorganisms you know, live on that Um, the the food that's provided by the vegetation that's then gonna decay into the soil. Um, And so you have to have that happen, but then you also have to have that removed for a period of time. And again, thinking about how nature works. um, Nature always has these large herds, but they always are moving. And and it's also quite likely that it is the best system in most places. I'm trying to avoid being, you know, Absolutely solid on this because it is so site-specific and year-to-year even specific, but it's better to have more animals and relatively closely congregated, you know, densely bunched and move them quite frequently. So those are sort of generalities that I think are true but but you really do have to have a specific understanding of your your climate, your location, what's happening there and even the human resources that are available before you know what you should do on your ranch, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean that's I mean and that certainly makes sense. I mean, obviously you can't one, one size doesn't fit all, but I mean there there I mean it seems like there's some general rule. I mean, what would you say most people let's just say we go to the average ranch, you know, and there's 750,000 of them in the United States. We've got, you know, lots and lots of ranches. Most of them are, you know, family owned. They're small herds. You know, I think average herd size, you know, something around 50 or something like that. What are the average person doing and what are they doing wrong?
1: Well, I think in general, you know, again, (laughs) hesitating to make generalities, but um, we need, we really do need to improve, um, grazing management. So there needs to be a better control over grazing, how it's happening, you know, sort of um, where and when the animals are moving and, and, you know, keeping them more densely congregated in a general way. I mean, lots of places out there, I'd say probably the majority still, are, they have a certain tract of land and especially, in fact, especially the smaller operations a lot of times are not as well managed because they might have, let's say, it's very different depending on whether you're in the Western United States or if you're in the upper Midwest or whatever. But let's say again, just making a really average general statement, let's say you have 50 acres and you have a herd of 25 beef cattle or something. People are tending to just kind of throw the cattle out there and let them, you know, graze as they will and move as they will. And that's probably still better than not having the grazing animals there, or quite frankly, doing crop production or lots of other kinds of human activities it's not as ecologically devastating as some people would like to believe, okay, but it is certainly not ecologically optimal. So really it's it's important that the land be subdivided, you know, whether it's with ideally probably with movable fences, so things like electric fencing, Um, And the nice thing about cattle because they're large animals even calves are pretty big. So you can um, control their movements with basically just like a single strand of electric wire for the most part. And, and the calves want to be with their moms, you know, so as long as you're keeping the moms, you know, under control and the moms want to stay together and they want to be with their calves, so they like to be in a herd, and they tend to do what you want them to do. They're, they're actually quite easy to manage. I mean, this is one of the funny, this is a side note, but uh, an, an important one. You periodically have this rewilding concept thrown out there by people who don't like, you know, beef and other domesticated grazing animals. They're like, why don't we just rewild? If we need these grazing animals, fine. Okay, I buy that argument, but why don't we just rewild? Well, we have this little example of it right here, where I live in in, um, the Point Reyes National Seashore here north of San Francisco. And there's an elk herd here. They cannot control them. It's just it's 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 a, it's almost comical to watch the efforts to control this elk herd, okay, by the Park Service, because these are really large grazing animals. You can't you can't fence them. Basically, they can get over pretty much anything. I mean, unless you put like a fifty foot high wall, they can get over it, um, and they they can't be managed by humans in terms of you know their movements or their breeding or anything because they're afraid of humans or um, they can even be really aggressive. I mean. Cattle, on the other hand, are really easy to manage. They're comfortable around humans. They're docile animals. They were developed, you know, they've been domesticated over a long period of time, but they were originally domesticated because the their wild ancestors were relatively um, Domesticatable. You know, there's a whole very interesting discussion about that issue in Jared Dyne's books, um, Guns, Germs, and Steel, in particular. He goes through this long analysis about how few animals of the wild animals that are out there can be domesticated. And it's really a very small number of the large animals. And so cattle came about because their wild ancestors could be domesticated. So they're actually quite easy to manage. You can manage their movements, their reproduction, what they're eating, etc., etc. And that's very, very hard, almost impossible to do with wild animals. So the whole idea of you can actually just do this with rewilding is kind of silly. And even, even in addition to that, in this area you got people upset because there was a little bit of um, Uh, culling of the herd of the wild elk herd that was here and actually they were culling what they believed were diseased animals and people were still upset about this because they were shot by the park and um, and the alternative to doing that is reintroduction of grizzly bears and wolves okay (laughs) and we're about 12 miles from San Francisco so people this whole it's so absurd the reality of how this would all work versus what people have in their minds. you either need the large predators or you need to have killing by humans, okay, to control these wild grazing herds. It's much simpler when you use domesticated grazing animals, because you, you control their movements, you control their population size, and they're very you know, amenable to being managed by humans.
2: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept. Um, you know, I mean, the, from my understanding, cows were basically domesticated from something called an auric you know, which is a much bigger animal. And, and and my understanding is they were still somewhat dangerous. I mean, you wouldn't get, you wouldn't, I mean, I, right. you know, probably a male bull cow can be very dangerous or male male bull, I should say, could be. Oh, no,
1: the, the mother cows can be pretty dangerous yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, think, you
2: know, cattle, actually, if I'm not mistaken, Don't cattle, mess with her calf. <laughs> cattle are in the top 10 number of animals that kill humans. It's probably because we have so many cattle, but they're not, you can, you can certainly get hit or hurt by a cow as big as they are. Uh, interestingly in Romania, as you may or may not be aware, they're, they're backbreeding the orc. And so they think we'll have some right. orc standing in 2025 out in the Romanian forest, which would be pretty cool. Let me ask yeah. you about, so, you know, there's a lot of farmers are out there that are, that, you know, they've been doing it, you know, for three or four generations, you know, they're, they, they, are cow-calf operations. They, 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 they they feed into the, you know, the, the, the feed, feedlot sort of scenario. They've been doing it for their whole life. That's how they, that's how the business model has been how is it different when you decide to step away from that? And how do you make a living as a rancher? Is it, is it direct to consumer? Is that the way to go? Is that the way to, to, to best make this happen? You know, and, and I'm just wondering, you know, if, if, if mass, if everybody on mass did this, you know, and then it, again, if you go direct to consumer, then you, then you cut into the profits of Tyson foods and Cargill and some of these other big giant processing companies, and they're not going to like that. They're going to lobby against that. You know, we've got the NCBA national cannabis beef association, which, I think represents both entities, if I'm not mistaken, and so I, you know, it's it's kind of you see this little dichotomy going on. Talk, talk to us about the financial realities of doing what you're doing and, and what that means for the average rancher.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a huge challenge, um, and in fact, because the whole meat industry today really is structured. Um, to be essentially controlled by corporations. If you're going to do something different and you're going to operate outside that, it's very challenging at every step. Um, and that's, you know, basically my husband, Bill Nyman, that's kind of his life work, is trying to create an alternative to that. And it's been very challenging. You know, he's, he has struggled. <laughs> and, you know, I, he, I have a great deal of admiration and respect for everything Bill has done. Um, but there's a lot of... Um, difficulty even for us in trying to do this successfully so um i guess i would say the good news is there are lots of opportunities and things that are you know um popping up all over the place and there are ways for people to get out of that you know mainstream commodity system and when it comes to to cattle specifically, I think the real opportunity is for people to figure out either how they on their own operation or in conjunction with other ranches in their region can raise the cattle all the way through, pardon me, I've got to turn this off, um, can raise the cattle all the way through um, to the finishing state, you know, to where it's a fully finished animal ready for slaughter on grass. So that's going to maybe be um, on, on a large operation, I mean one that has access to quite a bit of land, or it's going to maybe be a, a cooperative effort with a number of ranchers in a given area, ranchers or farmers, depending on where you are. Um, and I think a lot of that is probably part of the solution here, is, is um, people creating sort of regional cooperatives, especially for grass. I think you have um, tremendous opportunity there. It really does take a lot of energy and effort. You have to re- recreate that whole system of how how you're getting your animal to market, how you're you know rearing your animal, and how you're even getting it slaughtered and just then distributed, and that's part of the challenge with meat is you can't just pull the carrot out of the ground and take it to the farmer's market. You know, it's a much more complex process of getting it to the point where the consumer can eat it. Um, and so I don't necessarily think there's one answer to that question in terms of you know farmers markets or CSAs or whatever you know cow share or whatever. I kind of like the fact that there are all these different models popping up out there. And I don't really think any one of those things is going to replace the mainstream commodity system. But what it does is it creates opportunities for ranchers and farmers to look for something that they can get involved with and maybe um, begin to move in this direction, you know, have some of what they're producing going towards it. For example, some of the ranchers that we've been working with for a long time in the northwestern part of the United States um, are people that are still selling cattle to essentially to feedlots, but at the same time, um, they are also rearing some of their animals. Um, For example, their open heifers, the ones that didn't get pregnant, they might keep them for another season on grass and then sell those as fully grass-finished meat, things like that. And you can begin to expand that part of operation. Um, But I do think it's really important to know, I, I, I always wanna make this point, and I make this point a lot in defending beef, Most of the people involved in ranching in the United States are rearing the animals on grass. Okay, so they're already rearing, they're doing grass farming. They know how to do this and do this well. So um, we're not as far removed from a totally grass based cattle system as people might think. Um, right now, what's happening is people rear their animals to a certain age, and then the offspring you know, the mother cows stay on the home ranch, but then the offspring are sold to a feedlot at a certain age. So, um, it, people have in mind this idea that, like, what we're doing here on our ranch I mean, I'd say the mainstream consumer thinks that, like, what we're doing is so different than whatever. else is doing, and that's actually not true. We're really doing pretty much the same thing as a lot of other farmers and ranchers are in the United States, but we have Carved out a way to finish the cattle totally on grass and then get them to market. So it's a couple of extra steps, and those are hard steps. <laughs> you know, it's not like this can be done easily, but it is doable on um, mass in the United States. So um, it's not as impossible an idea as people might think. Oh, they, I do want to say one other thing, though. You mentioned the the role of the large meat companies, and that is a problem. I mean, they they are very concerned. About anything that's going to cut into their market share, and they control the access to the slaughterhouses and the distribution chains and so forth. So that is that is a big part of the the, the challenge: is um, how do you as a, as a, someone who's trying to do something differently, how do you get your animals slaughtered and distributed when you know Tyson and so forth are controlling everything?
2: Yeah, yeah. one thing. Go oh, go ahead, Jack.
0: I was just going to say you highlighted some interesting points that we've brought up in the past. We had uh, Professor Frank McLoner on, and he he told us even when you have these green finished cattle, they're spending their 80% of the cattle herd is going to be on grass at any given time, regardless of whether it ends up in a feedlot or is finished on grass. So, <clears throat> I mean, and the way, the way I see that, I guess, simplistically is that, okay, well, we're kind of 80% of the way to a fully grass finished, um, end product, albeit, you know, like you mentioned, those last couple steps can be very, very difficult and, I, I try to put myself in the shoes of someone who's in that production model where they're 80% grass and then finishing and grains like, you know, I'm probably gonna need some help from an outside source to really kind of flip that model to a true grass based setup. And you know, personally, I, I quite like the idea of having local grass fed options available as many places as possible. And you know, I think if we, if we would move towards that, that'd be pretty cool. Um, but getting there is like you mentioned, kind of a, kind of a hurdle. Uh, Are there any current, like if I were, let's say I was like a 45, 50 year old, uh, rancher who's been doing things the more traditional North American way with the grain finished. Is there like any like supports out there right now that would help me kind of transition towards that so that I don't get sunk in the process?
1: Um, I think there are. I mean there are some national organizations that are focused on you know creating a more grass-based system. Um, Groups like the Savory Institute and um, Acres which is a publication but also does a lot of events. Um, And there are others but I think what's probably more important is for people to get familiar with whatever grass networks exist in their region and then figure out how they can um, learn more about what's happening in their region and and how to get connected with what's happening because as i mentioned before i actually think cooperative grazing arrangements are are absolutely part of the solution here and so um you know and interestingly um you know there's a uh, there's kind of a reception uh, in the mainstream conversation again that um that this is just something being done by a few people and that the vast majority of ranchers are kind of just in the conventional Mode, and that's kind of true, but it kind of isn't true. Um, you know, um, there's a professor Al- Alan Williams who does um, uh, who does consulting for grass-based um, um, grazing, and he told me that uh, he used to speak at conferences 20 years ago, and there would be three people in the room, <laughs> mm-hmm. and now he speaks to rooms of a thousand ranchers, and th- and that's because there really is in the farming and ranching community, a tremendous dawning of recognition that the mainstream systems are not working. They are not providing good livings for the farmers and ranchers, they are not producing the healthiest possible food, and they are not maintaining the ecological health, which we all need as people who work on these landscapes and who need these landscapes to function well. So I feel like there's already this tremendous movement within the agricultural community toward these systems. You know, getting everything over, you know, converted is a huge process, but there's this quiet um, revolution happening where you have more and more people within agriculture. And I'd especially say people that are below the age of 50, you know, sort of young, the younger crowd, but not exclusively. Some of the people that are really interested in this are in their seventies and are, you know, maybe redoing what's been done on their farms for generations. And that's really exciting to see. So I feel like, we do need, you know, ins- you know I, I'm very in favor of incentives, and um, there's a program in California where they're going to try to help um, ranchers to, for example, pay for carbon farming plans for their ranches. And that's, to- I think that's great. If you can make that money available to farmers and ranchers, that's terrific. But I think the most important thing that's happening is the movement within agriculture to move toward this um, from, from within. And people are looking at people like Gabe Brown and Joel Salatin and others as, as, as examples and models of how, how they can redo what they're doing.
2: Hey, Nicolette, let me just um, put out some things out here because I think this is important stuff we can discuss as well. I mean, you know, we have people on there, Frank Metlauner, Sarah Place, Sarah works for NCBA. They will point to the fact that since the 1970s, you know, our cattle herd has shrunk by 30, 40 million cattle. We've, we've dropped it. We've continued to produce just as much beef. We've become much more efficient. We use less water than we used to. We produce less methane than we used to. We use less land than we used to. Uh, they'll say that's a good thing. You know, we've got China, you know, and other Asian countries where we're seeing an incredible uptick in the beef demand. And we've got to feed these people. You know, they just had a, they just had a, a, a big problem with their pigs in China. The Chinese pig herd just got some disease and they lost a bunch of their pigs. And now they're looking to, there's going to be a huge demand on domestic U.S. pigs to, to, to meet that demand. And so there's people out there that will say that, hey, this, this system that we've developed in the United States is extremely efficient. We produce a lot of beef with, with a lot less resources, you know, as far as, you know, some of these traditional ones. And, and, and maybe uh, grass farming is, is, is fine and, and grass finishing is great for a selected audience, but we've got a big world to feed. What do you think about and and, I, and the point you made, and, and we know that anybody knows you know cattle generally spend the majority of their life or at least most of them do on grass, and if we want to restore the ecology, you know maybe we do the regenerative agriculture and then still send a select select percentage of them off onto the feed so that they can produce the amount of food that's going to be required. I mean, what are your thoughts regarding that
1: mm-hmm. okay, so those are really important points and um and i you know you've mentioned um. Both of you have mentioned Dr. Mitloner, and I know him and like him and respect his work a lot and it's really important and I agree with you know 95 percent of what he says, but he is working kind of in the you know the conventional model and he's doing research connected to that and um, and my work is more about saying, okay, how can we envision something that's better than what we're doing right now um, So we have a, you know a kind of a different um, perspective and focus um, what I would say is, first of all, there's really no good evidence. This is the status quo system, you know, which has a lot of inputs from you know, agribusiness and from the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, it's, kind of, it's actually kind of sad. It really depresses me. If you pick up uh, the beef magazine that we get every month and you look at it, about half of the ads in there our pharmaceutical ads. I mean, that is really troubling to me, just just on its face. Like, why is the beef industry so closely connected with the pharmaceutical industry? You know, so there, there's this whole very strong um, network um, of, you know, agricultural chemicals, agricultural pharmaceuticals, you know, and then all kinds of other inputs that, you know, go into the whole process um, that are very vested in the status quo. And they would like, People to believe that this is really the only viable model. And I agree with the idea that um, we don't simply have to say, get rid of feedlots, you know, we should uh, re- really focus on grazing because, as you said, even the animals that end up in feedlots, a lot of their life cycle and, you know, their parents, you know, their, the bulls and the cows are on grass. So if you look at the grazing question, and make that your focus, if you're an advocate or if you're an you know, environmental regulator or whoever you are, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's absolutely should be done, that we should improve the grazing, um, regardless of what's happening to the animals after you know, they reach a certain age. Um, but I really strongly reject the idea that we have to have feedlots to produce enough food for the United States or for the world. Because, because of what I mentioned earlier, for one thing, if you graze well, you produce a lot more meat. And you get all these ecological benefits. So I would argue it really isn't a trade-off. You don't have to say, well, we want a lot of meat. And so, you know, we kind of like all this ecological stuff, but it's, you know, too bad. We got to have the meat. Um, I really believe that the future of farming is one that is much closer, looks a lot more like how nature functions. And when you do that model, you get life in these systems, you get much more health and vibrancy and much more productivity in all these systems. And so I think it's really a question of just looking at it from a whole different lens. I mean, I, I keep talking about Gabe Brown, but you know, he, he's, he said he used to wake up every morning and say, what am I going to go out and kill on my arm today? And now he thinks what new life am I going to see out there today? You know, I mean, he, he says, he talks about just a radical mindset shift. And I think that kind of shift has to happen throughout all of the agricultural industry.
2: Yeah, let, you know, let's say, you know, standard, standard model cow, you know, goes to slaughter, you know, 16 months, 18 months, something like that, you know, grass fed, you know, you add another you know, eight months, something like, you know, somewhere in there, you know, I don't know what, you, what, what age your, your cows are going to slaughter, you know, 24 months, 26 months, something like that it seems to be typical in the grass-fed world. So you get a, if you get a herd and, you know, your, your cycle is every two years instead of every 18 months, I mean, eventually you reach a point of equilibrium where you've got enough animals and you're still killing the same number of animals every year. Right now we have 94, 95 million cattle on, on U.S. What can the U.S. support? Do we have any idea what we could support with our current range lands as far as how many cattle we could have?
1: Well, again, I don't want to keep, I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but the numbers are, those numbers are meaningless because the grazing we're doing right now is far less than optimal. So we could raise... At least this many cattle, probably quite a bit more on the United States, on the North America or the United States, whatever you're looking at, if we focus on better grazing. And I think that is, you know, I, I am sounding like a broken record. I keep coming back to this, but it's that creates this more ecologically um, vibrant soil system and vegetation and much more healthy ecosystem. And we haven't really talked about this explicitly, but one of the most important points about cattle and why they're so important in the United States and in the world is because they actually protect the continued existence of these open lands. So I wrote a piece for the, um, The Atlantic a few years ago where I talked about pollinators. And they had actually done this analysis of California, where they showed that, you know, we have this massive bee die off all over the world and in the United States, and they're not totally sure what's causing it, but probably this certain type of pesticide is the most likely culprit. And so there's more and more interest in wild pollinators. And they actually studied this question in California and found UC Berkeley biology department did a study that said, that actually about 40% of all pollination right now even is not done by the domesticated bees, but by the by the wild pollinators, okay? And the wild pollinators, even more so than the domesticated bees, it's true for them as well, but especially for the wild pollinators, they are dependent on these open lands that are being used for grazing. Those are their habitats. That's where they live. That's where they gather all their food. And they do the pollination of the human crops that are being cultivated nearby. So it's a weird thing that people um, don't, don't ever even consider that grazing cattle And having those ecosystems where they're existing not only creates the food that you're raising there, whether it's meat or milk, but it also supports the crop production in California in a big way. And maybe more and more importantly in the future as you have the domesticated bees continuing to die off. So, you know, I think all of this stuff has to be understood. And this whole question of whether you can produce, you know, enough food and all this stuff, to me, a lot of this is basically red herrings. I mean, we really, it's not to say there's no validity to these points, but they really are not, uh, you know, it's not like, this is the end of the conversation. You know, we need to, we have to do it this way. No, this is the current model. There's a lot of money and political clout invested in the current model. There's no question about that. That doesn't mean that we can't do a different way. And I actually believe we have to, both for human health and for ecological, continued ecological uh, vibrance.
2: Yeah, one of the, you know, and this is the, the, the sort of the average person is not in this industry wants to be healthy and, and and for the people that are out there that feel that animal, animal based nutrition is an important part of that, which I strongly believe and that's why we, you know we're setting up this animal-based nutrition network thing coming out where we're going to try to get more consumers in contact with ranchers and, and, and a whole other thing to go around you know animal whether it's policy and stuff like that. I know there's some people I, I know one of the things I see the hangups with, with what's going on is, is the processing, you know the USDA processing, Makes it very difficult, and I know there are. I mean, I guess there's ways that you can actually buy a cow. You you actually buy the cow, and you don't need to go to the USDA processor. You can, as long as you trust the, the rancher to do the processing locally with a mobile uh, mobile processor or something like that. Is that a viable so- solution? You know, where I can go to your ranch to say, "Hey, Nicolette, I like that cow. I want him in. I want him in six months. I'm going to buy him, and and then I'm going to do that." And then you guys will get a process and we don't have to go through the USDA. Is that a viable option or, or is that is do you think that's a scalable option?
1: Um, well, again, I think the solutions are complex because I think all of these smaller initiatives and, you know, whether it's improving school lunch programs or whether it's farmers markets or whether it's connecting people directly to ranches, cow shares or whatever. I think those are all Interesting and part of the solution. And I think people um, should seek out whatever opportunities exist in their community. um, For getting more connected with their food and it's not just meat. It really is about getting your food as close as possible to the source because when you learn about how much degradation there is in the nutritional value of vegetables and fruits and so forth over time and through storage and you know refrigeration and all that stuff, you realize, wow, you really wanna be as close as possible to all of your food. Um, but yeah, I think, um, to me, we need to sort of attack this whole question on a lot of different fronts, and the reason I'm so um, enthusiastic about getting consumers fired up is because I think the drive really has to, the push has to come from them. I've done I've done um, lobbying on Capitol Hill a few times about some of these issues through with different. You know, I've never, I have never—I was never paid anything to do this. I did this as a volunteer, um, but I was asked several times by different nonprofit organizations to come with them and meet with legislators and stuff and to speak on Capitol Hill, and I've done that. And what always shocked me was you'll meet with different congresspeople or their staff, and they'll say, I really like what you're doing. I really agree with this, but I'm not hearing about this at all from my constituents, so I cannot make this a priority. I mean, and I'm always like, wow, how can you not be hearing about this from your constituents? Because this is, you know, at the core of American, the health of every person in this country, you know, how we farm and how we eat. And we have this massive crisis of, you know, public health right now in terms of, you know, this huge percentage of the population that is chronically, you know, ill with diet related diseases and, and more and more people are on chronic medication and so forth. So um, so I believe this consumer push and pull is so important to getting legislators, legislators to think about it and to, you know, getting retailers to be concerned about it. And it, it's really happening. I mean I you know I started working on this stuff like I said in two thousand and now it's almost two decades later. And it's shocking how different the conversation is because literally I would describe what I was doing for a living to people in Manhattan, you know, 20 years ago, because I lived, you know, I worked near Manhattan and they, they didn't they didn't have a clue what I was talking about. And now it's hard to run into anybody that doesn't have some knowledge of the sort of, you know, food and diet and health and aggregate, you know, all this stuff, how it's all related. It's very much part of the public conversation now. So I think that's the beginning of big change happening. Retailers are realizing they need to offer Better alternatives to their customers. They're going back to the farm level and saying to their suppliers, we need to have stuff that doesn't have antibiotics or hormones in it. You know, in the beef cattle industry, you you asked about efficiencies and the production systems. Well, you know, one of the main reasons that there's there's a faster, you know, um, growth rate and, and and the animals are killed at a younger age is because it is still prevalent in the mainstream um, beef industry to use hormones. About 85% of the cattle going to slaughter in the United States today are given hormones at some point in their life, or more than once in, in many cases. And to me, that's unacceptable. You know, I, I'm a huge defender of the beef industry and of beef as food, but but I am I could not more strongly disagree with doing that. I That is wrong on every level, and so th- that's the kind of stuff we have to get away from as an industry. And then people have more interest and more more confidence in the food that we're producing.
2: What are your thoughts? You know, as, as someone who has lived many years as a vegetarian, and I don't know if it was for health reasons or ethical reasons. What do you think? What do you? Uh, what is your response to you know? We need to do meatless Mondays, and we need to start really, you know, promoting plant-based diets to save the save the environment. What are your thoughts regarding that particular recent trend?
1: Well, I became a vegetarian when I was a freshman in college, and I thought that it was the right thing to do from, primarily from an ecological standpoint. You know, I was very involved in environmental causes already. I was a biology major. I was super interested in the natural world and doing the right thing for it. And I still remember distinctly receiving a flyer from Sierra Club that said, save the rainforests in Latin America, stop eating beef kind of thing, you know. And of course I was 19, so it made perfect sense to me at that time. <laughs> you know? I mean, you just don't, you know, you don't think about all the complexities when you're a teenager. Um, and I, I, I'd stayed with the diet largely for a long time, largely because I felt it was um, initially I thought it was optimally um, the optimal um, health diet. I, I've become grow, increasingly skeptical of that for a long time. But I also felt it was the light, you know, sort of the lightest footprint, um, ecological footprint. And, you know, as I've kind of alluded to a couple of times, the more I've understood food systems and ecological systems and the importance of how, how we should raise animals, or, or rather produce food rather, um, I've, I've come to see animals as an absolutely essential part of that. Now, you could say, okay, that's fine. But it's still better if you have a large portion of the population not eating meat or, you know, you have more and more veganism because then you have fewer animals and that reduces the total, you know, resource, you know, that's used to produce food and so forth. And to a degree that's true um, because it is true that meat is more resource intensive to produce than many other foods. Okay but the reason that that, that i oppose the sort of meatless monday and all these ideas is because what it's doing is it's giving people it's a false sense that that's the right answer you know that the healthier diet doesn't include meat in fact i get really frustrated um you know at you can go in places like kaiser and see a poster on the wall saying you know basically the less eat, meat you eat the better you know <laughs> that's kind of the message that you get from nowadays from a lot of the medical establishment and from the public health establishment when it is so untrue you know I, when i don't believe that supports health um you know and you know more about that than i do but certainly from an ecological farming standpoint it's absolutely untrue because the because every bit of fertilizer that's created for a vegetable farm or a fruit farm or a grain or soy, whatever, if that's not coming from animals, then that's coming from fossil fuels. And they're very intensive to produce from you know, fossil fuel intensive. So if we wanna really think about truly regenerative systems that are not gonna be dependent on extracting things from you know, the Middle East and transporting them around the world in large tankers and stuff, you have to have these animals and you have to have them broadly distributed around the world and you have to have a lot of them. And that not only is important for the farming systems, but it produces, you know. Again, Gabe Brown talks about you got to have them on your show. <laughs> he talks about the 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 food being more nutrient rich when you're creating it in these biologically vibrant systems. So it's it is absolutely essential that we have the animals in the in the food system. And when you're telling people Meatless Monday or Eat Less Meat, da da da, and that's your message, you're not only giving people a false sense about what they should be doing with their diet and what they and what's best ecologically, but you're alienating all the farmers and this is the thing that really frustrates me you, every time you support if you're an environmental group and you're and you've got on your masthead you, you know you should eat less meat and and they do this you know a lot of them are doing this you're every single farmer and rancher in the country that has animals on their farm, their blood pressure is going up by 20 points when they see that. And they they get really angry and upset. And so you're creating this greater and greater divide between the environmental advocacy community and the ranching and farming community. And that's actually those are communities that have actually be closely connected and working together every single day. So I get really frustrated about that kind of messaging. And I think it's actually not only counterproductive, but it's just wrong.
2: Yeah no I agree with that sentiment you know completely obviously I, I I'm not a proponent of less meat than the diet if anything it's more meat than the diet which I think provides uh provides health um you know let me let me just uh think about uh what, you know ask you about um you know how many how many you, you guys are you guys are up in San Francisco or not near San Francisco you're on a kind of right on the coast there uh not far away from that how, do you guys get any? Um, I mean, is there any the ranchers that? Are, I mean, I, you said your neighbors more productive to you. Do you do you guys find that a lot of ranchers in that local area are adopting similar practices after seeing what you guys have done, or do you see that that the majority of people are still kind of in this conventional model?
1: Well, I I wouldn't um, want to say that we are the cause of people moving towards better grazing, even in this area. I mean, we like to think that we're you know, serving as good role models for anybody in agriculture. But I'd also say that there's so much interest in so many different sources of information. out. I mean, the internet has connected people from all over the world. So people are having this conversation. And ironically, a lot of farmers say it's much harder for their neighbor to adopt what they're doing because nobody wants to do that. <laughs> you know, but you might look to the other side of the United States and take, you know, some example from there. But anyway, um, that's kind of a side note. I But I would say that a lot of good farms and ranches are doing this now and there are a lot of good examples a lot of good books and i think i mean i can definitely see in our region lots of people that are taking a lot of interest in this if you go to a rancher's meeting here there's a lot of conversation about this kind of stuff. I've had a lot of conversations with the National Park Service about the kinds of stuff that we want to be doing to be to move in a you know even in a more regenerative direction, and they're telling us that they're hearing about this from all of the ranching community in this area. Everybody in ranching nowadays is looking at this stuff and is interested in this. So it's an it's actually an exciting time. It's kind of a an industry that's a little bit under assault right now because of all this talk about you know meat is bad and especially cattle. Or bad. but at the same time there's more interest in change and improvement than ever and been you know maybe partly triggered by some of that stuff so maybe that's the, the flip side and the positive side of you know meatless mondays it's getting people who are producing meat to think more about well what should we really be doing to do this in an optimal way
2: one of the criticisms um, of a grass finished product for many people is you know there's not enough fat on the animal you know, or, you know, and, and obviously it's going to vary from breed and, and sex of the animal and time and, you know, all those things are going to impact it. How do we get a, a product out there using grass without using hormones? Because obviously hormones are going to impact that and make it easier without using feed. Um, how do we get an animal that's nice and juicy and fatty and, 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 and pleases the palate? And as I believe, you know, if you're, if you're going to eat a diet that is primarily meat based, you need to get adequate amounts of fat. I mean, the fat is essential part of the diet.
0: Totally. That's why
2: I. That's why I. I mean, I. I eat fattier cuts of meat all the time just because I have to have enough fat. So how do we? How do we? What can we do with these animals to to make sure the the yield is fatty enough?
1: Yeah, I, I. Thank you for bringing up the fat because people are always talking about protein and they're talking about lean protein all the time and that drives me crazy. Um, my husband is very very passionate about this issue and I wrote about it in, in defending beef. Um, and elsewhere, I've written about this a number of times, Um, he believes that from the standpoint of eating quality, you have to have the fat. And he and I both believe that in terms of any healthy diet, it has quite a bit of fat in it. And if you look at you know, again, looking at how nature functions, there is a season when all the wild grazing animals are fat. They're really fleshy and they're really full and they're beautiful and their coats are shiny. And then after their lean season, if depending on the geography, or you might be talking about a winter or you might be talking about a really dry season, depending on where you are in the world. But then they're kind of, you know, they're, they're looking more sallow and that, you know their coats don't look as nice and they're thinner. So what, what you need to do, in our view, this is something my husband's been advocating for a long time. You need to understand what the natural cycle is in your geography and you need to mimic it in your grazing, in your area. So what we do with your grazing and, and your slaughter processes. So what we do in our area is we only slaughter animals at a certain time of year. And that's essentially the same time of year that you would have the fat um, wild animals. And we, um, we kill the animals when they're in peak condition. They have to be old enough and they have to be fat and they have to be, you know, in good condition. And that's the only time we will slaughter an animal for food. So, um, it, you know, again, it changes how you do things. But I think this is a mindset. There's a, in fact, my husband and I had a meeting at Gourmet um, Magazine with our editorial board a few years ago. And we had this whole discussion with them about seasonality. It was at their request. They wanted us to come in and talk to them about slaughterhouses. But we got into this big discussion about seasonality. And they were just blown up. They told us later to send emails. I was saying, wow, that was amazing. We've thought about seasonality with peaches and tomatoes, but we've never thought about, it with, about meat before. And I've written some pieces about this for the Atlantic too. Um, there's, there is a season for every single thing that we eat. And if we understand that, and then we get closer and closer to that as consumers and as people that are producing the food, we're going to produce food that's healthier, and we're going to produce food that's better tasting as well, more nutritive, more delicious. And the fat, I couldn't agree with you more strongly. It is an absolutely essential part of meat. So I think we should be producing fatty animals. And then, you know, not overly fatty. We don't support, you know, I mean, I'm fine if people want to eat Kobe beef, but we're not interested in that. Okay. What we want is healthy, you know, vibrant animals on the landscapes and that are appropriate genetically for their region, but then they're fully grown and they're, and they put on a nice fatty cover during the the season of plenty. And then you slaughter them.
0: That's interesting. Timing is everything. (laughs) (laughs) Nicolette, where, where can folks find you and where can they get their hands on your book?
1: So I have two books, Righteous Porkchop and Defending Beef. They're both available on, you know, of course on Amazon, but also um, Defending Beef is sold at uh, the Chelsea Green website. Chelsea Green is a fantastic publisher that does They've, they published um, Gabe Brown's book that I keep talking about and they published um, The Call of the Reed Warbler by Charles Massey that I mentioned. He, it's just a tremendous publisher, so you should go on their website and look at their other stuff too. Um, and I have a little website. It doesn't have tons of stuff on it, but it just people can get more back, information about my background and other stuff I've written. There's lots of links to stuff I've written. And it's just nicolethahnnyman.com. So those are a couple of places. And um, at the moment, we don't have an active like company website or anything because we're just selling it to individual chefs and retailers right now.
0: Cool. And we would love to get Gabe on the podcast. If you want to connect us, connect us with him, he'd be a, an awesome guest and I'm sure our listeners will be clamoring for him to come on after listening to this one. Yeah. From- oh,
1: he's, he's <laughs> unbelievable. You have, he, he's one of the coolest guys I've ever met and his, what he's doing is unbelievable. And I should say we have this great, um, Twitter and, uh, and Facebook page at Defending Beef as well. I should have mentioned that, that. We're very, very active. We're connected with tens of thousands of farmers and ranchers all around the world on that. So that's another resource for people. And I'm definitely happy to connect you with uh, Gabe Brown. He's, 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 he's awesome.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Well, and we'll link all that stuff in the show notes too, so listeners can click right on to it if they want to check out more about what you're up to and uh, check out some of the stuff we talked about today.
1: Okay, Awesome. Thanks Nicola, for having me, you guys.
2: Nicolette, thanks for sharing your morning with us. It that was a pleasure. Um, okay. Maybe I'll I get up there and visit your ranch one of these days if, if you don't mind. I'm not too far from there. You know, I'm down here.
1: Absolutely, just, just like you're a, welcome a, anytime.
2: <laughs> check out those beautiful. See what those beauty, real beautiful cows look like. You can yeah, out. ours
1: are real pretty? <laughs>
2: right. Nice, wonderful. All right, thank you so much. You're welcome.
0: Hey, folks! Human Performance Outliers Podcasts is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media, and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.